All right, let's read the word together. Matthew eleven sixteen through 30. To what can I con- compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang the dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of these miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. What's up, everybody? How are you guys doing today? Good. So good to see you all. If you're new, I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, along with a team of other people. Uh, we, we lead this humble group of people. Um, it's a new year. And, uh, and with the new year often comes sort of fresh energy, fresh vision, both for ourselves individually and then also for us as a church. Uh, many of us enter the new year ready to shed the blah that we are leaving behind and to finally fully become the better version of ourselves that we always knew that we could be. And you guys look like you're doing an awesome job. We're like eight days in. How many of you guys are still sticking with your whatever you're doing? Awesome. Cool. Well done, everybody. Um, and so... So this time of year, it's a really good time for us to be able to just like pause and reflect on the goodness of God that has sustained us through the highs and lows of the year before to celebrate the blessings as well as grieving the losses. And for every one of us, the last year was a mixed bag of both joy and sorrow, victory in some areas and failure in others. And I think that the process of making resolutions can be a wonderful time for us to reflect a little bit on who we have become, you know, to, to, to examine sort of the forces that have shaped our lives, and then to even put on paper, what is the desire of my heart? What is it that I am living towards? What is the good life that I, that I desire, and how can I get there? So every year since I was a kid, uh, my family 
we take off the week between Christmas and New Year, and we would always get away somewhere, often to uh, my grandparents' cabin uh, down at Lake Billy Chinook. And then um, this year, uh, my wife and I and our kids, we, we went down to my parents. They have a, a place in Sun River. And we spent the week down there uh, just relaxing, having fun, and doing just a little bit of time of reflection uh, before the New Year begins. And as we were reflecting on the year, as I was thinking back over all that God has done in 2022 and even before that, there is so much to celebrate. Like, God has been doing so many cool things in the life of my family, in the life of the church here, that we can just enjoy and be grateful for. And then there was some stuff to grieve, some losses, some disappointments, some unfulfilled hopes. And while there is certainly a lot to look forward to in the year ahead, there's also plenty of uncertainty, things that we might feel like we're unexpected and that we're, we're sort of processing through. One of the big things that we're anticipating this year is that um, this year, my wife and I get to actually take a sabbatical. Uh, we are going to be spending three months sort of away from the church as a time of reflection, hearing from God, resting, just kind of getting reset for the years ahead. Because as of this weekend, I have been the lead pastor of this church for seven years now. I know, I know. I found another gray hair this week, so uh, it's been a journey, but it's, been, it's, it's just the joy of my life to be able to serve this group of people. And so uh, this year, we're going to be taking a sabbatical. More information is going to be coming down the line, but just get ready. We're going to be gone from May through July, but we have an incredible team of people. We have an incredible church community. You are barely going to notice that I'm even gone. But there's even some bigger news. Um, as some of you have already heard, Carly and I got a surprise blessing for Christmas this year. Uh, we are going to be having our fourth child. Fourth! Four! No, no, no. No, 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 no. How can you guys be that happy? It took me like three weeks to get to that point, okay? We're still processing. It's great, yeah. Super excited. Just goes to show that being mostly careful is not being careful enough. <laughs> so, so while we were in Sun River a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot for us to pray and process through. There were some fears that we needed to hand over to God. There were some disappointments that we needed to surrender in faith. And there are hopes and longings for us to name and to contend for. And this, my friends, when we think about the new year, the new opportunities and resolutions, this is where the good stuff really is. Way better than the typical resolutions that we make in January, a program that gets us toward that ideal beach body or a healthier bank account. Much better than that is the practice of getting in touch with the deeper desires in our hearts, the life that each one of us craves and that we, are, we feel like we're, we're just sort of feeling around in the dark for, you know, in search of hoping to eventually stumble upon. And as a church family, uh, every winter, we, we like to spend these winter months uh, teaching on ancient practices, what we often call spiritual disciplines, as a means of learning how to make space in our busy and noisy lives in order to come back to that which is at the center of our beings, the deepest desires in our soul that draw us closer to God. 
And so this year, um, as we were thinking through kind of a, a, a series on disciplines, we, we came back to this book called Sacred Rhythms um, by Ruth Haley Barton. H how many of you guys have read Ruth Haley Barton, this book in particular, a handful of us? Um, this is a wonderful, wonderful read. It's kind of a, a becoming a classic. And if you're interested in going deeper with us in this sermon series, I want to encourage you to pick up this book, Sacred Rhythms, Ruth Haley Barton, and follow along in the journey. Now, I know that for some of us, the moment that you hear the word spiritual discipline, your guards immediately go up. Because many of us grew up in sort of more religious systems and contexts that put a lot of pressure on doing certain things in order to be a good Christian, following certain rules, practicing certain disciplines, and that that's how you measure your spiritual success. And so when you hear the word disciplines, you bristle a little bit at sort of an expression of Christianity that was based primarily on shoulds and oughts. Or maybe for others of us, as soon as you hear the word disciplines or practices, you start to feel this like creeping voice of shame starting to crowd in, reminding you that you're never doing enough. And that is not the invitation that Jesus is calling out to his followers with. Jesus doesn't come to us with sort of an alternative burden from the other systems or philosophies of the world, but just as hard and heavy. He comes with something else. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus promises us this. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, who wouldn't want that, right? Isn't that what all of us long for deep down? And unfortunately, many of us have been sold this abundant life as only coming through more striving, more effort, more earning, and while the way of Jesus is hard, and it comes by the way of a cross, it is a narrow way, it is a difficult way. Jesus makes that very, very clear throughout the Gospels over and over again. At the same time, he says it is ultimately not achieved by gritting our teeth and being good enough. He says that the way of Jesus is first and foremost and always about grace. And so the disciplined life isn't one that flows from obligation, but it's one that flows from desire. It's our desire that drives us, and it's from this desire that we orient our lives with discipline toward that which we most deeply long for. So the question this morning is very simple. What do you want? What is it that you want deep down at like a soul level? Bethany read the passage for us just a few minutes ago. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus expresses his deep frustration at how, how so many people just don't seem to get it. They're like spinning their wheels and they're doing all of this religious stuff and they're, they're all completely missing what Jesus came to bring them. When, the, when John the Baptist's disciples come and ask about Jesus and say, like, are you really the one? Are you the person we should be following? He laments that that people are so short-sighted that when John came, they were frustrated and angry and they rejected him because he was too strict, he was too religious, he was too extreme. And then Jesus came with an alternative way of sort of enacting the kingdom of God parallel to his cousin, and they reject Jesus because he's too chill. He's hanging out with the wrong people. And Jesus says, "What? Like we play a, a, the, the flute for you, you don't dance. We play a dirge for you, you don't mourn. We try to give you whatever, we try to communicate to you, and you you just won't listen. And then he goes to various towns and he shows what the kingdom of God is like. 
by, he does it by healing sick people, by setting those, uh, setting those who are captive by the demonic forces, setting them free, by announcing the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the people in this, these towns, they listen to his message, they see his signs, and they shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know, maybe there's something else that will scratch the itch that I'm looking for. The people just don't get it. And Jesus is getting frustrated, and in his frustration, he comes out of it by offering this prayer. And I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in, uh, in his translation, The Message. He says this. Abruptly, Jesus broke into prayer. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've concealed your ways from sophisticates and know-it-alls, but spelled them out clearly to ordinary people. Yes, Father, that's the way you like to work. He's saying the way to true abundant life that Jesus came to proclaim isn't found by the sophisticated or the wise. It's not achieved by the disciplined or the overachievers, but it's rather revealed to the simple, to the humble, to those who are burned out on religion and striving, but who still have this inner hunger, this inner longing for God. And Jesus goes on. It says, Jesus resumed talking to the people, but now more tenderly. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation, coming out of the father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. Jesus says that he came to share this way of life with other people, with anyone who is willing to listen. And he roots this abundant life in not achievement or philosophy, but abundant life, eternal life, is all about relationship. And he says that the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is now being revealed to us, regular, ordinary people, not through religion or rule-following or doing, you know, trying harder, but simply by grace. And then Jesus, from that place, he makes his pitch of discipleship. This is, what he, this, is, this is what's on offer to each one of us. He says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that a beautiful translation? And this is, this is actually the translation of the verse that I feel like God has given me and my family to live into this year, especially as we're looking towards sabbaticals, learning how to heed the call of this invitation. This is what the call of discipleship is. What is the heart of following Jesus? It's simply this. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Following Jesus is learning how to walk with him daily. It's learning how to work alongside him, like a young child helping their mom or their dad with a certain task. Uh, my two-year-old daughter, Maggie, when it, whenever we're cooking dinner, she loves to run over, grab her little apron, get the step stool out, and help us 
make dinner. And that's like the image that we see here in Matthew 11, that we are watching how Jesus does it, how he ministers, how he loves, how he lives. And then he says that we, we are invited to imitate his way of life. And he calls this lifestyle of discipleship unforced rhythms of grace. Essentially, it's about orienting all of our lives toward relationship with Jesus. And he says that as we walk with him and as we learn to work with him, we will learn to live freely and lightly. How many of you guys want to live freely and lightly? During Jesus' ministry, he was relentless in his commitment to not just address people's behavior and fix them, but even more so to address the orientation of people's hearts. And in the vineyard, we often talk about this as a, a bounded set model versus a centered set model in the way that we think about our discipleship to Jesus. It's distinguishing between sort of an insider-outsider way of thinking versus an, a complete orientation of our lives. So in a bounded set model, you see here, uh, it, you, you are determining whether someone or something is inside or outside by carefully defining the boundary. So in a salvation sense, what you're doing is you're trying to define what are, the, what are the requirements to go from being an outsider to being an insider? What is the threshold you have to cross to be securely on the inside of God's kingdom? And membership in a bounded set is clear. You're either in or you're out. You've said the correct prayer, or you've been baptized, or you affirm a certain type of beliefs, or you practice right behaviors, and that is how you determine whether you're inside or outside of the boundary. And anyone who hasn't done the correct ritual or believed the right set of beliefs is by definition an outsider. And then once you're on the inside, then you become really fixated on avoiding those boundary markers. The boundaries become sort of a religious purity code that measures whether we've stayed in bounds or we've strayed outside. So membership in a bounded set is static. It's either or. You're inside or you're outside. But there's another way of looking at it. This is kind of what we hold to here at the Vineyard, which is what we call a centered set model. A centered set means that people are defined by their orientation toward the center. What matters most is movement. It's dynamic. It's not static. So a centered set describes a life of discipleship. It's about orienting all of our lives toward the center, which is Jesus. The center is not a particular uh, belief statement. It's not a particular purity code. It's Jesus himself. And as we orient ourselves closer and closer to him, we become more and more like him. Centered set theology is not subjective. It's not relativism or vague or loose theology. It's simply the way that we define ourselves in relation to what's at the center rather than what's at the boundary. How many of you guys are still with me? Am I making sense? Anybody leaving the church yet? All right, cool. We're still, still in this together. So if we define Christianity as a bounded set, we will tend to get fixated on the boundary. We will worry whether we've done enough, whether we've thought the right things, whether we've performed the right ritual, or whether we've been sufficiently disciplined. I grew up in a world where I was constantly afraid of whether or not I was an insider or an outsider. I was a church kid. We went to church every single week. But for years and years and years, every salvation altar call, I find myself running to the front because just in case, what if I'm not 
on the inside? What if I didn't have enough faith when I recited that prayer that one time? What if that baptism water didn't actually accomplish what it said it was? What if I didn't mean it well enough? And humans are terrible at determining boundaries, which is why Jesus came rebuking religious leaders. Jesus could see what other people couldn't. He saw the orientation of the heart. And over and over again, Jesus was accused by these religious leaders of hanging around the wrong kinds of people. He was always hobnobbing with sinners. I don't believe that Jesus was in any way casual towards sin, but Jesus' mission wasn't to just get somebody across a line. It was to change the orientation of their lives. It was about introducing them to a new way of living, what he calls life in the kingdom of God. So as human beings, we are not static. We are always moving. If you have been a follower of Jesus for 40 years, if you got baptized, you know, half a century ago, Jesus would say, it still matters the way that you are living. It still matters what you are orienting your life towards. We are all becoming something. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but, are, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. The religious system of Jesus' day was all about defining people as insiders or outsiders. And the way that you became an insider, or the way that you felt more confident about your status as an insider was to try harder, to follow the rules better, to fast more often, to memorize more scripture. And the people who kept these rules and who imposed them on others was a group called the Pharisees. These were religious leaders who were very godly, but often missed the heart, God's heart for regular people. They were the very definition of who would be considered an insider. And yet, in every interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees, he constantly warned them that they were at risk of becoming outsiders. They were at risk of a life that was wasted. Their lives weren't oriented toward the center. And then Jesus would go and he would hang out with people who were the very definition of outsiders, prostitutes, crooks, non-Jewish people, and he would pronounce forgiveness over them. Why? Because they were moving toward the center. They may be way far off. They may be nowhere near the boundary, but Jesus acknowledges, he sees, you are moving toward the kingdom of God. He would say to some of them, you are not far from the kingdom. You are not far from true, abundant life. And I believe that the way that those who were far from God were drawn to God in Jesus' presence was often by the awakening of desire. Like something deep in their souls was being poked by the love of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can most easily see and recognize whether our lives are oriented toward the center or away from God is by paying attention to the desires in our hearts. Have you ever had a moment where you felt ambushed by like some kind of deep inner longing? Anybody ever feel that way? It happens to me all the time. 
The ambush happens when I'm suddenly momentarily arrested by a sunset or when I'm hiking along and I see the beauty of God's creation and something catches me off guard and shows me I was created for something greater. I was creating as somebody who would be fascinated by beauty. This is something that God gave me to point me to him. The ambush happens when I'm watching a movie with my kids and my middle son. He's just the the snuggliest, sweetest, also most challenging at times, uh, kid, and he crawls into my lap and he snuggles up to me. And there's this ache in my heart in that moment where I feel a longing to love and to be loved in return. The ambush crashes in, sometimes when I'm doing dishes and a song shuffles on and uh, something from like years and years ago and it triggers this intense experience of nostalgia, kind of pointing me back to a memory in my younger years, you know, when I felt God so closely when I knew that he was inviting me into this, this life of intimacy and adventure with him. Literally this week, I was, it was from listening to an old Jars of Clay album. <laughs> and while moments like this are valuable, these fleeting emotional ambushes are not meant to be the compasses of our lives, the, the thing that drives us in one direction or another. Rather, these moments can, in a flash, reveal something that is happening sort of deep beneath the surface to show us what we are oriented towards and to call us back to something that we, we long for from the past or that we hope for in the future. Sometimes my ambush isn't even one of these like sweet, nostalgic, beautiful moments. Sometimes I'm ambushed by this negative feeling that pokes a longing. Sometimes I'm reminded in a moment of just how far I am from who I want to be. Or uh, I have a feeling of loss that reminds me that things are not as they are supposed to be, that the world is, there's something wrong with the world. And I have this longing for something to be made right, for everything to be made new, or a longing to reorient my heart back toward the center. It's these desires that reveal what it is that we are living toward. This is what Ronald Rollheiser writes in his book, The Holy Longing, another book that I encourage you to put on your list this year. He writes, it is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction. Put more simply, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul. We are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless, serene persons who once in a while are obsessed by desire. The reverse is true. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, congenitally diseased, living lives, as Thoreau once suggested, of quiet desperation, only occasionally experiencing peace. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. And so Jesus often asked those who were spiritually hungry, hungry this very simple question. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And these questions, they carried the power to draw out a deeply honest reflection in the person who is being asked, opening a door for Jesus to lead them into something deeper. 
In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on the road traveling to a city called Jericho, and a crowd of people are following him. They're, they're eager to see him perform another miracle, hopefully even for themselves. And as Jesus is walking, a man by the name of Bartimaeus, he, he was blind, and he calls out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd around blind Bartimaeus, they get frustrated. They're annoyed. Hey, can't you see that this guy is busy? And, and who are you to ask for anything? Like, we've been in line. We've been following him for a while. Let us have our miracle first. But when Jesus heard the cry, he instructed the disciples to bring the blind man to him. And then he asks Bartimaeus this question. He looks Bartimaeus in the eyes and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And it seems like such an obvious answer to the question, right? Like here is a blind beggar and Jesus asks him, what do you, what, what do you want? But Jesus is doing something deeper. He's drawing out the longing of the man who is before him. It's a question that brings us face to face with our limited humanity. When Jesus asks you this question, it strips you of sort of all the surface level clutter and exposes what is truest at a heart level. It goes to the tender place. Ruth Haley Barton writes this in her book, Sacred Rhythms. She says, your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you have experienced so far, is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you, or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as a husband or wife, mother or father, somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. There is a place within each one of us that is spiritual in nature, the place where God's spirit witnesses with our spirit about our truest identity. Here God's spirit dwells with our spirit, and here our truest desires make themselves known. From this place, we cry out to God for deeper union with him and with others. And so when we attend to the, the longings within us and allow the questions of our deepest desires to strip away the outer, outer layers of self-definition, we are then finally able to tap into what is real. We're getting to the deeper levels of the spiritual life. And awakening to these things is not something that we do on our own. On the contrary, when we awaken to deeper desire, it's actually an indication that God is already at work within us. He's already doing something in our hearts. He's already drawing something that is, that is buried under the surface, up to the surface. Nothing in the spiritual life begins with us. It all begins with God. And it's from the place of desire that we can enter into these ancient practices that we're about to explore over the course of the next couple of months, these spiritual disciplines. These spiritual disciplines are not a means for us to achieve more in the Christian life, to become self-actualized, or to level up this year. The spiritual practices we are going to spend the winter teaching on are a means of reorienting our hearts to that which we most deeply desire, the things that many of us are barely awake to. These spiritual disciplines are God's way of constantly reorienting our hearts back to the center. And so when we practice the disciplines, we are not doing so you know, as obligations. These are not heavy burdens or religious things that we have to fulfill. 
No, as we learn to meditate on scripture or practice the Sabbath or retreat for times of solitude or learn how to pray, we are learning how to walk with Jesus and work with Jesus. We are in those spaces entering into his unforced rhythms of grace. And it's in this that Jesus promises that we will learn to live freely and lightly. So again, the question this morning is, what do you want? And the answer to that question may not feel very profound if you answer it honestly. Some of us may feel like our answers are a little bit shallow. What do I want? I would love to know that my job is secure this year. What do I want? I want to be healthy and I want my kids to sleep through the night. <laughs> you know, what do I want? I want just to be free of this crippling debt that is burdening my family. But Jesus asked the question and he invites the, the, the honest answer as a way to always point us a little bit deeper than what we think at the surface level. The answer is always meant to get us to a little bit deeper answer. And then that answer points us to even a little bit deeper all the way until we get to the very core of our being where we discover that our deepest inner longing is for God himself, an intimate relationship with him, the one who made us and who loves us. And so that's what we're gonna go after this year. That's what we're gonna go after over the course of these next couple months. And I wanna encourage each one of us as we're exploring these different disciplines, these different rhythms, ancient practices, to ask the Lord, how can, I, how can I bring this into my life so that I can reorient my desires back to you, God? One of the things that Kara mentioned in that video that we're gonna be doing in a couple of weeks is sort of collectively, we're going to spend 24 hours as a church reorienting our hearts back to the center through what we're calling Seek First, a 24-hour prayer meeting. And this isn't something where we're just like doing it for the thrill of it. We're doing this because we believe that one of the most important things that we can do as a church every single year is carve out space and time where we are just reorienting back to God, where we are just worshiping and praying and calling out to him. We don't have some big prayer list where we're contending through for these seven breakthroughs. We're rather coming to God and saying, we just wanna follow you. What's on your heart for this year, Lord? And I wanna encourage each one of us to carve out some time during that 24-hour window, an hour or two, uh, you know, come and fill the night watch especially. I think that God, you know, he favors those who come in the middle of the night. He'll give you a little extra. You can, you can call that like a Marshall guarantee. I won't be there, but you should go. <laughs> Before we invite Brennan and Kara to come up and lead us into ministry time, I just want us to take a moment and sit with the question, okay? So can you guys just do me a favor, close whatever's in front of you, your phone or anything else, and let's just get comfortable for a minute, posture our hearts to receive, and I want you to close your eyes, and imagine that Jesus is standing right there before you as he did with Bartimaeus. He's looking at you with his whole attention and with tenderness in his eyes, he asks you this question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you desire?
And as you are honest with yourself about that question, then ask an even scarier question. What is this desire pointing me towards? Is this desire that I'm living towards, that I'm longing for, is it orienting me to the center? Or is it orienting me somewhere else? For some of us, when we think about this question, it actually provokes maybe even a little scarier question. Am, am, am I moving toward the center? Am, am I a Christian? And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you never would have considered yourself to be a Christian. You've always felt, you, you, you've never t sort of taken a step towards Jesus in that way. Or maybe you've felt like you're a Christian, but you know that you have wandered far and wide from the center. And so as everybody has their eyes closed, continuing to, to just sort of ask these questions and meditate on the, these, these ideas, I wanna pose the question to you. Is today a day where you wanna reorient yourself back to the center, where you want to be a follower of Jesus? The Bible uses this word where we, um, he says to repent and then to receive the kingdom of God. And repenting, all that word really means is, is turning, turning back to Jesus. It's stopping moving the direction that you are going and change direction and go to Jesus. So this morning, if you know that you need to take that step to become a follower of Jesus, would you do me a favor and just put your hand up? You can do it quietly. Nobody's looking around right now. Is there anyone here who wants to take a step to become a follower of Jesus? 